First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 1. Of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Of course, he's writing about the second coming of Christ. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, that is, be alert, be completely alert and awake, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you also do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that you do not render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesying, which here is preaching or teaching. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace Sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful as he that called you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word and let God's people say praise the Lord. And you may be seated. Now I want you to look at verse 18. Verse 18, in everything, give thanks. People say we want to know the will of God. How do we know the will of God? Well, he said this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is a very, very rich chapter, and I do not 
pretend that I'm going to open it up today. We're going to zero in on this verse 18. I know it's not Thanksgiving, but I think every day that we are awake and we know our names ought to be a day in which we thank the Lord. If you got up this morning and you know who you are, you know where you live, you know how to go where you need to go and how to get out here to worship, how to get back home, you ought to be thankful. Almost every day, I thank the Lord for five things. I try to thank Him every day for these five things, but I won't say every day. There may, be, may have been a day in recent years when I have not specifically named them. First of all, I thank the Lord for my home, especially now in Williamson County. <laughs> I feel so sorry for a lot of young people who would like to have a home. That's why they're building rental properties everywhere, because folks can't afford to put enough money down to get the payment down to something they can live with. What I've paid in my lifetime for houses is laughable. The first house that Lynn and I lived in was in Turner City, which was a base housing. Albany, Georgia, Brother Turner knows because he, he grew up in Albany, I think. Were you born in Florida, Brother Turner? He's born in Florida, but he spent the early years of his life and until he moved to Tennessee uh, with a, a, short, a short trip in Texas and maybe a, maybe a couple of places that I don't know about. He came here to Tennessee. But in Albany, they had three bases. They had a Navy base, a Marine base, and an Air Force base. And uh, back in those days, they had what are called TAC and SAC bases. TAC, Technical Air Command, SAC, Strategic Air Command. I don't know which Turner City was, but they moved it to California. And when they moved it to California, all of the base housing, the houses that people who were in the Air Force there at Turner Air Force Base became available. And so Lynn and I purchased our first home, one of the base houses, our payments, are you ready for this? A whopping $64 a month. $64 a month was the payment on the house, the first house that we owned. Probably had about 700, maybe 800 square feet in it. And then we, a few years later, when Trace was just maybe four years old, we purchased another home on the other side of the Flint River. Albany, Georgia is divided by a river called the Flint River. And uh, we were in East Albany with the Turner Air Force Base. We purchased the house on the other side. And the payments in that house were $98 a month. 98, man, that was up 30-something dollars. And we lived in that house until we moved to Tennessee we couldn't sell it because things were so bad economically in Albany, Georgia. So out of the blue, of course, accidentally on purpose, you know, I don't believe in luck. I believe that God orders and arranges these things. So somebody said, contacted me and wanted to rent the home. So we rented that home for seven years. Meanwhile, when we moved here to Tennessee, the house that we're still living in today the payments on it were $254 a month, $254 a month. You can't get an automobile today for a payment $254 a month. So I'm thankful for my home. We bought a home when things were inexpensive and 
not only am I thankful for the physical house, but I'm thankful for my, the homemaker. I'm thankful for my wife who made the house a home and all of the things that we've experienced there over the years. I'm thankful for my home. The second thing, I say, Lord, I'm thankful for my health. I've enjoyed good health most of my life. I've had a few little operations and surgeries. I've had a few little things that have come my way, but nothing compared to things that many of you have suffered and have experienced. Then I'm thankful in the third place for my healings, all of the times that I've gotten sick and that I've gotten ill, from a cold to the flu to anything else that I've had. It is the Lord who makes you well. He may use men and doctors and physicians and other things, but he gets you well. So my home and my health and my healing, and then I'm thankful for my happiness. I may not look like a very happy person. I cannot do a thing about the face that God gave me, but I can assure you that inside I'm a positive person. Wish I could show more of it outside, but inside I'm positive. Inside I'm not, I'm not uh, melancholy and downtrodden and all of that. May look that way, but that's not the way I feel inside. I'm thankful for my happiness. I have three grandchildren. I have a wonderful daughter-in-law. I have a wonderful son. Uh, they're happy. They, they have a good family. The Lord has blessed them and is blessing them. I'm thankful for all of you. Uh, here we've been here now for right at 52 years, which is unheard of in this day and age. And we may not have a huge church, but you know, the Lord Jesus only had 12 disciples or 12 apostles. He had a lot of people that said they were his disciples. And one of his apostles betrayed him. And Jesus once said to his small group, he said, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. So whatever the Lord has sent, whomever the Lord has sent, we're thankful for you. Appreciate you. Appreciate you praying for us and, and giving whatever you give. How would you feel led to do that? All of these things have contributed to my happiness. Most of all, I'm thankful for my hope. The hope that I have in life and the hope that I have in death because of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, because I live, you shall live also. He said, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And so when I pass by the graveyard there in uh, uh, Williamson Memorial Funeral Home over there and Go over there sometime, look at some of the grave plots of some of my friends, people that I've known, folks that have frequented here, whole families are out there. And I, I performed or uh, uh, was able to officiate in each one of them's memorial service, funeral. There's one family out there, there are four of them buried out there, and I, and I conducted the services for all of them. I look at that and I say, Lord, I'm thankful to you that this will not be my final resting place. When we put my body into the ground, I will be gone. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I have a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, a hope in life, a hope in death, a hope beyond death. Now, as I've taught you in these last few months regarding Joseph uh, in the uh, book of Genesis, I think I told you in the last study or the study before 
that even though we have these blessings of our home, our health, our healings, our happiness, and our hope, we are prone to forget our blessings, prone to forget them, prone to forget the God who has blessed us, prone to remember that every single blessing, everything from drawing your breath to your next heartbeat to the ability to speak your name to the ability to do the job you do, whatever jobs you do, uh, you have those gifts, those abilities, those talents, all of that comes from the Lord. Everybody comes from the, uh, everything comes from the Lord. So we are prone to forget that. Secondly, I think I've told you that unthankfulness betrays a spirit of ingratitude. And we are, forget our blessings, I believe, because we are unthankful and ungrateful for them. And how is that possible? Because we forget the author of all of our blessings. Then I've taught you that our Lord would have us imitate Him regarding thankfulness. In Luke chapter 6, He said this to His disciples. He said, The Father is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. He's kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward will be great, and you shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. And then he says this, be merciful as your Father is merciful. So being thankful and being kind is an act of mercy. We are living in a most ungrateful generation. Would you turn with me to Romans? We're going to come back to 1 Thessalonians. So you might mark 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But let's go once again to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And remember, as I've told you over the years in Romans 1, Paul says the the Gentiles are sinners. Romans chapter 2, he says the Jews are sinners. Romans chapter 3, he says everybody is a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. After a a long introduction in Romans chapter 1, Paul jumps in in the doctrinal area. And in verse 18, or verse 17, he says... In the gospel, he has told us in verse 16 that he's not ashamed of the gospel. He tells us that the gospel, the power, the word is dynamite. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile, for therein, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How do we see the righteousness of God in the gospel? We see, first of all, in that he would not spare his only begotten son. If he's going to have anything to do with us, then we have to be sinless. We have to stand before him with his righteous garments on. And in the gospel, we learn how God can be righteous and yet justify the ungodly. By the way, in most cases in the New Testament, the word righteous and the word justify come from the very same Greek word. To be righteous is to be justified. To be justified is to be righteous. So he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We see how holy God is, that he would not have anything to do with us. And so, 
uh, uh, in our state, in our fallen state. And so he gave his only begotten son to take our place, charging him with our sins and charging us through faith with his righteousness. And that's why he says in the last part of verse 17, the just shall live by faith. Then he begins with the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, he says. We don't hear too much today about the wrath of God. All we hear about is the love of God. Well, I treasure the love of God, but you can't appreciate the love of God if you don't understand something about the wrath of God and how it is put away. And he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And it's revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The King James Version says, literally, it is who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. He says there are two witnesses. First of all, in verse 19, that which may be known of God, that which God has taught us as human beings, is manifest in them. God has showed it to them. Then the invisible things of him, verse 20, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. So we've got an inner witness, and then we've got a witness from the world, from the created world. That when we see the world, when we see the stars, when we see the sun, we see the moon, we see this wonderful creation, we know that it just didn't happen, and I don't care how far you go back. All of these guys talking about going back millions of years and billions of years. No matter how far you go back, you have to go start somewhere at the beginning. Things don't just begin themselves. There's an eternal being. We call him God, and God is the one who created all things, and God is the one who created you. He's the one who brought you, and it brought me into existence. And he says he's given us two witnesses. He's given us an inner witness. They're no real atheists. They're people who say they don't believe in God. They're people who live as if they do not believe in God. But when it boils down, you'll find that most men know that there is a God. In fact, all men know that there is a God. And he says, so it's manifest in them. Then it comes from the creation of the world. And they should deduce two things from that. First, his eternal power. They should see that there's a tremendous power that has created all of this. And then the Godhead. In other words, if this creation bears evidence of intelligence and design and all of these things, then there must be a God behind that who is intelligent, who is a designer of all things. And this, the bottom line, he says in verse 20, is men are without excuse. But watch this now. How does this manifest itself? How does this attitude toward God manifest itself? Here it is, verse 21. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they what? Neither were they thankful. They weren't thankful. They glorified him not as God. They might have talked about a being who created things, but they took him down off of his glorious throne and glorified him not as God. They glorified him as a God they created in their own image rather than the God who created them in his image. He says here that they became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart as a result of that 
they became fools, and their heart was darkened. Notice that the manifestation of this spirit of unbelief and rebellion is they were not thankful. They didn't glorify him as God, and they were not thankful. And when you're not thankful, you become vain in your imaginations. You become conceited in your imagination. You become uh, a person who begins to think of God as yourself. David wrote in the Psalms, he said, God has said, thou thoughtest that I was altogether such in one as thyself. You thought I was like you, but I'm not like you. I will keep my word. I will keep my promises. Now, so we're living in a most unthankful generation. Why? Well, we're unthankful. We're unthankful. Why? Because we don't see that there's a God who made us. They don't, we don't understand it. We reject that. We hold down the truth and unrighteousness. The bottom line is verse 16, we are ashamed of the gospel. We have no power with God because of our shame. He said he is the power of God unto salvation. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The righteousness of man is condemned in the gospel. And then we must teach our children to be thankful. How? By thanking the Lord in their presence. Now, I believe that it is impossible for a child of God to be taken advantage of. And I'd like for you to turn uh, now back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's impossible for a child of God to be taken advantage of. Showing you some of the benefits and the fruits of thankfulness. We know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and those who are the called according to His purpose. But we know this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 18, he says, a most striking verse, in everything give thanks. Now notice he didn't say for everything. He said in everything. He's not expecting to say, Lord, thank you for breaking my leg. Thank you, Lord, for putting me in the hospital. Thank you, thank you, Lord, for uh, uh, almost killing me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in everything, in everything, you should be able to give thanks in some way to the Lord. This is his will. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So what is the lesson here? First of all, we should be practicing. We should practice learning to be thankful for all things. Now think about this. If we know that the Lord loves us, do you know that the Lord loves you? Are you convinced that the Lord loves you? Well, number two, you should know that he loves you because he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. So if you believe in his only begotten son of God, you have the proof of God's love for you. So we know that God loves us. We know that he loves us because he gave his only begotten son for us. And we know thirdly that he's in charge of the world. So what does that mean? It means that there are no accidents with God. There are no accidents with God. I heard a man recently on television, it's been a year or so ago, and he said something like, this thing of saying that everything is the will of God and according to the will of God, he said, that's a bunch of malarkey. Well, I'd have to say to that man, like the Lord said to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he said this woman married all of these 
men and in heaven, whose wife is she going to be? He said, well, you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. And I would have to say this. Everything that happens in this world is either by permission or it's by decree. In other words, either the Lord allows something according to his will in order to accomplish something, or he actually brings it about according to his will. In either case, we can't say that it's not the will of God. We can't talk about something that's outside the will of God. Everything is in the will of God. The issue, when men begin to talk this way, is the will of man. Men are afraid that God is going to encroach on their will so that they won't be able to be, quote, free to do what they want to do. And then if they want to choose God, they can choose him. If they don't want to choose him, they don't have to choose him. Well, I have news for you. We've never had a free will. There's only one being that has a free will, and that's God. All of our wills is, is influenced by our desires of the flesh, by our fallen nature, by all of these things. Your, 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 your appetite, your appetite's stronger than your will. As I've said before, why don't you just will not to eat for six weeks? You need to go on a diet anyway, so just go ahead and will it. Don't, don't, don't eat anything for six weeks. Well, you're not going to be able to do that without some kind of divine intervention because your stomach is stronger than your will. Now, you do have a will. You do have volition. That's will. And you can choose this and reject that. I don't have a question with that. But what I want you to understand is by nature, because we are sinners, we'll always choose that which we ought not to choose except for the grace of God. He must influence us. He must cause us to choose the right thing. So let me go back. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We know that the Lord loves us. We know he loves us because he gave his son for us. We know that he's in charge of the world so there are no accidents with him. And if we know that he's working out all things for our good, we can be thankful in everything because in everything he is working for our good and for his glory. He is at work in us, by us, through us, around us, and for us, all for our good. Well, what is for our good? What is for our good? Well, I may not know every particular thing that's for my good, but if I am to give thanks in everything, then whatever it is, it must be for my good. So somebody says, what if I die? Well, your death can be a good thing if you're a believer. Can there be a greater good than going to be with the Lord? I have said before, what we're doing here when we pray for people, we're, we're being selfish. We don't want them to leave. My mom and my dad used to sit around and talk about who was going to die first. I bet all of y'all talk about that, don't you? You married couples. Who's going to die first? They talked about who was going to die first because the other one didn't want to leave the one who was going to leave. In other words, I don't want you to go because I need you here in my life. And so they would talk about that all the time, about who was going to go and what was going to happen if one of them left. If my mother was only 67 years old when she passed away. My dad lived another seven years after that. 
The Lord determines those things. We do not. But here's what I'm saying to you this morning. If I am to give thanks in everything, then whatever it is, it must be for my good. Now think with me. I know that it is for my good to trust and to depend on him. I know that it is for my good to call out to him. I know that it is good good for me to ask him for grace and strength. I know that it is good to do his will regardless of what is going on in my life, regardless of what it may cost me. If it takes trouble to make me call on the Lord, then trouble can be for my good. Can you follow me? So whatever it is, and as I was saying a moment ago, when we're praying for people and we're saying, Lord, heal them, what we're really saying is keep them in this world and keep them out of heaven for just a little while longer. That's really what we're saying. That's the dilemma, isn't it? That's why it's always best to lay before the Lord what your heart's desire is and then say, not my will, but thine be done. And you can't say that at those certain times unless God gives you the grace to do it. Because like it or lump it, we always like for our will to be done. We have a will, and you can decide any way you want to. You can say, well, I'm going to choose the Lord, that's fine, but I'm going to tell you that you're going to choose the Lord because the Lord chose you. What does the Bible say? The Bible says we love the Lord because what? Because he, he first loved us. We call on the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We call on him because why? Because he called us. As I've asked you before, have you ever seen a group of sheep out looking for a lost shepherd? No. It is the sheep who get lost. It is the shepherd who looks for the sheep. When the sheep make their sound to let the shepherd know where they are, it's because the shepherd was looking for them. It's because the shepherd was calling them. And you can, you can use that with anything that's related to your salvation. You called on him because he was calling you. You sought him because he was seeking you. You believed on him because he gave you grace and he gave you faith and he showed you the gospel and he opened up your understanding and he unstopped your deaf ears and he removed the veil from your eyes and he took, he took the scab off of your heart and he enabled you to believe the gospel. All of that, God is behind it. Charles Spurgeon himself, turn to Romans chapter 5, please. Romans chapter 5. Charles Spurgeon himself, the great preacher of grace from London, England, who died in the 1800s, 1892, I believe it was. Spurgeon was on his way to worship on a cold, wintry day. So cold that he couldn't make it where he was going. He intended to go to a certain place, and he couldn't get there. He said the weather was so bad, so he said, I ducked into what it was called in those days a primitive Methodist chapel. And he said the primitive Methodist chapel was just a few souls in there because it was so cold. And you know, back in those days, folks, they didn't have heaters like we have now. They didn't have, you know, a furnace and all that. I don't know what they had to keep them warm unless they had a fire over in the corner. But he said it was so cold that day that even the minister didn't show up. 
And there were a few souls there. And he said, I ducked into the primitive Methodist chapel. And he said, an old deacon got up in the front and said, well, the pastor is not here. I suppose I'll have to say something. And so he began and he took Isaiah 45, verse 22, for text. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. <clears throat> and Spurgeon said he began to say anybody can look. He didn't say pick up a ton of bricks. He didn't say dig a hole big enough to dump the world in it. He said look. He said anybody can look. He said a fool can look. A child can look. Even a blind man can look because this is the look of the soul. This is a looking to God, a depending on God, a trusting in God. It doesn't even take physical eyes. And he went on and on about looking. And then he said, he looked back in the back at me, Spurgeon said. And he said, young man, you look mighty miserable this morning. Why don't you look to Christ? And Spurgeon said, I looked until I thought I would look my eyes out. And he said, on that day, I came to know the Lord. And I left the chapel rejoicing in Christ. But he said, I thought that I had chosen Christ. I thought that I had done something. But he said, I later came to understand. Now let's see, what was the weather that day? It was a wintry weather. It was very cold weather. Where was I going? Well, I was going to this church. Well, why couldn't I get there? I couldn't get there because the weather was so bad that I couldn't get there. So where did I go in? Well, I went into this primitive Methodist chapel. Well, what happened? Well, the pastor wasn't there that day. A very unusual situation. And what happened? Well, that old man stood up up there and took a text that God blessed to my heart and to my soul. And I was saved. And he said, I came to see that behind it all was the Lord. Behind it all was the Lord. <clears throat> you can't get away from the fact that behind it all is the Lord. Now, I'll tell you this. You can be saved if you want to. If you want to be saved, you can be saved. Everybody that wants to be saved can be saved. The issue is not that. The issue is, it's like the man, when his friend was talking to him all the time about smoking. On his back all the time about smoking. And he said, I can, I can quit any time I want to. His friend said, you can't. Yeah, he said, I've, I've quit five or six times. <laughs> but what that means is you can't quit. When you quit, you don't smoke again. If you quit drinking, you don't drink again. If you quit whatever, you don't drink. If you, don't, you quit eating, you don't eat again. He, he's saying that he didn't have the power to do what he wanted to do. That he was addicted to it. And I'm telling you that you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if you want to. The problem is you don't want to. Why don't you want to? Well, you don't want to because you've got a rejection of him. Why do you have a rejection of him? Because you want your will to be done and not his. You want to tell God what you're going to do and what he's going to do. And you want to tell him he can't do a single thing with you unless you let him. That's the problem with men. The Lord Jesus himself said, no man can come unto me except the Father which have sent me. Draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. And the word draw is a Greek term, helkuo. It means to bring irresistibly. It's the same word used when Peter laid hands 
on his sword, and they were coming out to arrest the Lord. The Lord told him, he that betrayeth me is coming with troops. They looked up, here come these Jews, and uh, Judas's chariot was leading them, and Judas had told them, now the one I go up and kiss, that's the one you arrest. And he went up to Jesus, and he said, hail, master, and he kissed him. And they took the chief priest, the high priest, whoever was there, said, grab him and hold him fast. And they bound the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter laid hands on his sword and pulled it out. And the Bible says that when he pulled it out, it says the sword didn't resist at all. Can you imagine that, a, soul, a sword not resisting? See, the word there, when he pulled it out, that's the word helkuo. It's the same word translated draw. No man can come unto, my, can come unto me except my father once has sent me. Draw helkuo him. It's the same word used when they threw the net into the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus said, pull up the net. We, we hadn't caught anything. Throw it on the other side, and you shall find. They pulled it over, and there were so many fish in the net, it almost broke. And it said they drew the net into the boat. It's the same word, helkuo. It is an irresistible drawing. It doesn't mean that he draws you against your will. It means that he changes your will so that you want what he wants. Tell me today, do you want what he wants? Are you able to say, not my will, but thine be done? If you can, <clears throat> you believe everything I've just said. Let's don't fuss and fight and argue over theological things. Let's don't confuse people by telling them they can't do something. They can do it. You can reject the Lord if you want to reject him. And I'll tell you this, you will reject him unless he does something for you. You say, well, I believed on the Lord Jesus. I know you did, but you believed on him because he did something for you. When a baby is born to a woman, let me ask you, did anything take place before that? Now, you know it did. You know that the, the egg had to be fertilized with sperm. You know that, that a conception had to take place. You know that it had to stay in, into the mother seven to nine months, sometime beyond that. So when that child comes forth, that child comes forth because of a lot of things that happened before that, right? All right, now the Bible says that we're born again by the Word of God. And the word, word of God there is the word sperma. It's the word sperma, often translated seed. When Jesus talked about a sower went forth to sow, and he sowed seed, and it fell in thorny places and in stony places, and it didn't have much depth, and then some of it fell in good places. That word is sperma. Now, what I'm telling you is this. When a baby is born, lots of things created that and brought that to pass so that when the child is born, we know that other things happened. When a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a result of a lot of other things happening that God has been doing. He's been working on you. If I have time, I'll have something more to say about that in just a minute. Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5. Paul tells us that being justified by faith, verse 1, we have peace with God. 
And now what that means is that God is not mad at us anymore. <clears throat> it means the war is over. The war is over. And the war is over because the Lord Jesus Christ made peace by offering to the Father what the demands of peace were, which was perfect righteousness, perfect obedience rendered unto the holy law. Now it says we have peace with God. Now it is sin expressed in self-will and disobedience that has caused the war between us and the Lord. You see, the Lord cannot be at peace with the sinner who is at war with him. But coming to faith in Jesus as Messiah, we're justified. That is, we are legally acquitted and declared not guilty. So having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we run up the white flag of surrender, and the Lord accepts us, the Lord adopts us, the Lord declares that he's reconciled to us because we are reconciled to him. Therefore, we have peace with God. There's a peace now, a peace accord. But not only is the war over between us and God, but there is a friendship and a loving kindness. When Abraham believed God, he became the friend of God. James chapter 2, verse 23. Abraham believed God, and it was reputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, my friends, if you have come to God's Son, his Father is your friend. Now, you talk about bragging rights. I remember the song, I got friends in low places, but I got a friend in high places. The, high, the highest place. He is the highest. He is the Lord the highest. Now notice, having peace with God. Notice verse 2. Having peace with God, we have access to Him. We have access to Him. This idea is that of being introduced to the King and His court by His Son through His Spirit. We are introduced to the King as pardoned offenders. And we are allowed to kiss the King's hand. We are allowed to bow to Him we are allowed to be received by him. And because we are standing in him, we have access into this grace, he says. Verse 2, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And as a result of that, we rejoice in hope. See, I said, I thank the Lord for my hope. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is, because we're standing in His grace by faith, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, not only do we have access to Him at all times, but we are able to do something the world cannot do. We can boast even in trouble. Look at verse 3. Not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Now, you got to go back and remember what I said earlier. God is in charge of everything. There aren't, any, there aren't any accidents with Him. No accidents with Him. If there are no accidents with Him, that means that whatever He permits or whatever He actually decrees and brings into your life is not by accident. It is something for your good. It's for your good. And he says we can glory in tribulation. 
Verse 3, tribulation is trials, trials and trouble. Why? Because trials and trouble befriends hope. Now he's going to show us how this works. He says, we glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation works patience. Now when do we need patience? We need patience when things are not going well. We don't need patience when things are going well. We need patience when we're undergoing trials. Is patience a good thing? Yes. Well, then if tribulation works patience, tribulation, though it may be in itself bad and painful, though it may be sent by the devil himself, it will work the good grace of patience in us. Now, when Job went through all the suffering that he went through, who brought those trials on Job? The devil did. Remember the devil went up before the Lord and he said, yeah, I've considered Job. The Lord said, where have you been? I've been going up and down through the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? My servant Job, there's none like him in all the earth. That he he worships me, he shuns evil, he, he serves me. And remember the devil said, yeah, let me get at him though. Remember all that? I won't go through all of that. You can read the first three chapters of the book of Job and get every bit of it. Who brought that on Job? Well, the devil did. But the devil brought it by God's permission. He had to ask permission from the Lord himself to trouble Job. Is that not right? And so I can say that it was the Lord's will for Job to be troubled. Though he used the devil to do it. Now, I don't know about you, but this helps me. (laughs) It helps me to know that anything comes my way from sickness to sadness to trial to tribulation to whatever it is, that it's for my good because it's from him and he cannot do evil. We need patience when things are not going well. Now, watch it now. You can read this. We're not going to turn over. But when do we need patience? Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 12 and verse 12. He says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. We need patience when things are going wrong, and that's the very time when we really don't exercise patience. But that's when we need it. I'll tell you this, I never called on the Lord like I called on him when I was ill back in July of 2020. I knew that I was sick, and when I was put in the uh, critical care unit there at Williamson Medical Center, I knew that I was sick, but I can thank him for that trouble and that tribulation because it moved me to call on him for help, and calling on him for help resulted in a good spiritual experience, and I'm stronger spiritually now as a result of that trial than I would have been if I hadn't gone through it. Now he says in verse 4, look at here, patience works experience. The experience resulting from the trouble was that the Lord was with me. The Lord comforted me. The Lord in this case heard me when I called upon him for help. Have you ever read Psalm 91? The Lord says of his people, it's used of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it includes us. He shall call upon me, the Lord says. And I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him 
my salvation. I had a good experience as a result of a bad event. I learned that I really do believe in the Lord. The sincerity of my faith was proven to me. Job's trials were brought upon him by the devil, but they resulted in the experience that he held fast to his integrity. Listen to these words, Job chapter 2, verse 3. The Lord said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? There's none like him in the earth, a perfect and good and upright man, one that fears God and avoids evil, and still he holds fast his integrity. That was after Job went through some trials. So he says experience, and patience works experience. Then he says experience works hope. Those who are tried and are sustained through the trial by faith come forth stronger than before the trial. Verse 5, and hope makes not ashamed. Hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. This is a hope that will not deceive us. We should not be ashamed when we stand before God at the judgment because we hoped in Christ unto the end. As Solomon said, the hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 28. Now verse 5. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. And what he's saying is hope will not disappoint us because our hope is in Christ. We're not ashamed to suffer for his sake. Our hope is in the blessed work of the Holy Spirit who has shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. Can't you see how the various and sundry things that have happened in your life is for your good and for God's glory? Can't you see that? No matter what you've been through. I'm going to bring you a whole study on this later, but I'm going to close right now by telling you this. There are three reasons for trial. I'll just touch on them, and I would like to develop them, but I'm not going to today. There are three reasons for trial, for trouble, for tribulation in this world. For the unsaved, it is to get their attention. All the trials and the troubles that unsaved people have it's to get their attention. It's to make them consider their own mortality. It's to make them look up. It's to make them consider death. It's to make them consider salvation. It's to make them seek the Lord while they may be found. So there's trial for the unsaved. And the purpose of that is conviction to bring them to faith. Secondly, there's trial for the saved. What's the trial for the saved? One more passage, Romans chapter 12. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. Why do Christians have trials? Are you willing to stand up today and say that since you have become a Christian, you have rendered perfect obedience to the Lord? Is anybody here willing to say, I have rendered perfect obedience to the Lord since I've become a child? Well, if you haven't rendered perfect obedience to the Lord, that means that in some way, somewhere, somehow, you've been disobedient. All right, disobedience brings chastisement. You might translate chastisement trouble. Trouble and trial and tribulation comes upon the saved because of disobedience. Paul, 
I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, he says here, in chapter 12, these are writing, writing, the book of Hebrews was written to those predominantly who were Jewish, who've made a profession of faith in Jesus as Messiah, who are going back, some of them are going back into Judaism. So notice in verse 5, he says, you have forgotten, Hebrews 12, verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation that speaks unto you as unto children, my son, he calls you my son. That means you're redeemed, my son. Just because you're going through trouble doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It means he loves you. My son, despise not thou, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Do not faint when you are rebuked of him. When you're a believer and you say, why is this happening to me? It's happening to you for your good. It's happening to you because you belong to him. It's happening to you to bring you looking to him, to bring you to look to him again. All right, look at verse 7. Verse 7. If you endure chastening, if you endure it, if you don't quit God, if you don't turn back on him, if you don't say, I'm, I'm through, I'm through with God. When we went over to Israel years ago, every uh, guide who was a Jew, we talked to him a little bit about the Lord. You know what he said? He said, I'm through with God. He was a Jew. I'm through with God. But I think we basically said, well, you may be through with God, but he's not through with you. <laughs> he's not through with you, brother. I don't know. He may be gone now. He may be gone into eternity. But people look at it. They look at all the suffering. And all the suffering the Jewish people went through. All the suffering they've gone through. All the things they've gone through. They went through all kinds of things scattered all over the world. Hitler killed millions of them and all that. What was that all about? Well, it's, all, it's about disobedience. It's about unbelief. That's what it's about. Just because you're kin to Abraham, you're not exempt from trial and trouble, my friend, and just because you're in Christ, you're not exempt. That's what that's about. That's about God doing something good for you. Now, I'm going to touch on something here that's really sensitive. <laughs> I don't believe in slavery. I think slavery is bad, although it is mentioned in Scripture. Christ even uses the term in many of his parables about a man that had a slave and he sent him to harvest his grapes and all that. But let me tell you this. The poor people who primarily in our nation came here through slavery, the black people, they never consider that God was bringing them to a place where they could hear the gospel. They were under foreign gods. They were under gods who could not save them. And they were brought here. Yes, it was bad. But God uses lots of bad things to work good. If you're exercised by it. Isn't that what it says right here? If you endure the chastening. You see, what happens is people say, well, and, you know, uh, I told a, a black man one time, he was a friend of mine, I said, <clears throat> Who did those white slave owners buy those black slaves from? He said, what do you mean? I said, they bought them from black masters. 
They had their own people in slavery. Islam, Islam has the oldest business of trading in slaves of any culture in the United in the world. In the world. Islam has practiced most of those slaves were in Islamic countries. Most of them. Slavery is bad. Slavery is cruel. But they never consider that God was working through something that was tough to bring them where they could hear the gospel. And now many hundreds of thousands of black people are trying to go back to Africa in their spirit and in their culture, rejecting the God who brought them where they could hear the gospel. Don't turn your back when you get trials going on here. If you endure the chastening, then it means that God's dealing with you as with sons. Verse 8, but if you're without chastisement, if you are a child of God and you can live like hell and you can live like you're a child of the devil, it probably means you ain't a child of God. Now, no matter how hard you try, you're still a sinner. You're not going to be perfected until Christ comes again. But that doesn't mean that we just go and turn our back on Christ and say, well, I believed on Jesus one time, so I'll wind up in heaven. No, I don't think so. I think if God saves us, he puts the spirit of his son in us, and the spirit of his son in us leads us to at least want to, to desire to serve the Lord while we're here. Now, that's not for me to decide. That's for the Lord to decide. I I don't have any decision at all in that. He says in verse 10, speaking of human fathers, actually begins in verse 9, we've had fathers of our flesh that corrected us, and we gave them reverence, we gave them respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? We gave them reverence. I've told the story, Benny, I hope you don't mind me sharing it with these people. I told the story when Benny was growing up. I don't know how old he was. Were you 15, 16 years old, 17, something like that? 14 maybe? But, uh, his dad would call him every morning and ask for Benny to get the, get the fire lit. Is that what it was, Benny? Get the fire started. And so one morning, I guess his father didn't hear any noise in there, and he said, Benny! Benny! You need, need to get that fire. Billy, Billy hollered back and said, there's a man up here this morning. And his father said, there's a man down here too. <laughs> what I'm saying, Benny gave his dad reverence. He gave his dad respect because he knew that his father meant business. His father was in charge of him. So he says, here, we've had fathers that have corrected us. My dad used to have you go out and break off a switch. He'd get put in prison today, wouldn't he? Sometimes it'd be a belt. Well, it said, we gave reverence to our fathers, but he said, shall we not be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? They chastened us, verse 10, many times after their own pleasure, but he does it for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. All right, verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seems joyous. No chastening seems joyous. It's grievous. When you're going through it, you don't enjoy it. Nevertheless, afterward, it would yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them 
that are trained. If you have the word exercise, it is a Greek word for trained, that are trained by it. John writes in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, the Lord speaking through John, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous and repent. So there are three, there are three reasons for trial. First, for the unsaved, it's for convic- conviction to get your attention. For the saved, it's for disobedience. And for the saved who persevere in faith, it's for blessing. Joseph is an example. The guy we've been studying on Sunday morning, regardless of what happens to him, he keeps trusting the Lord. And so what does he say right at the end of Genesis? In Genesis chapter 50, he tells his brothers, and he said, you meant it for evil, but he said, God meant it for, for good. Joseph saw all of it as a blessing because he was looking through faith and he continued to persevere. So there are three reasons for trial. One is to get the attention of a person that's unsaved. Number two is to correct and make stronger a child of God. And number three is to bless a child of God when trial and trouble comes and they continue to trust the Lord. That trial and trouble will turn into a blessing every time. May the Lord add his blessings on the reading of his word.